Hello, you're listening to the abridged version of Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full-length version of Book Shambles and also get loads of other extra treats and bits and pieces, then why not go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. Anyway, here's the abridged version with loads of really interesting things that were cut out. I mean, there's lots of interesting things you're still going to hear, but some of the things you're missing out on. Hello and welcome to Book Shambles, producer Trent here. This week's episode, uh, once again, Helen Chersky is stepping in for Robin, who is on tour with Brian Cox in the US and Canada at the moment. Uh, You can listen to the new podcast, Taking the Universe Around the World, to hear all about their adventures. You can also read about it in uh, the Horizons Tour Diary that's up on the Cosmic Shambles website by Robin. And there's also daily videos as well from Robin and Brian on the Cosmic Shambles YouTube channel. So make sure you check all those out. They are on a couple of weeks break from their tour starting from next week. So uh, Robin will be back on the podcast then. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to subscribe to get extended episodes each and every week, plus lots of extra goodies like uh, access to some of the stuff from the incomplete map of the Cosmic Genome Archive that's coming up, the Fireside Conversations series, Uncanny Hour, Tips for Existence, all sorts of stuff on there. Check that out. And also worth mentioning, we've just come to the end of Mental Health Awareness Week in the UK, and there is a couple of articles up on the Shamble site by our pal Dr. Dean Burnett about the theme of this year's Mental Health Awareness Week, which is loneliness. So there's some articles up there about the neuroscience behind uh the need for human connection and whether social media can help avert loneliness and some other stuff as well. So do check that out on the Shambles website. And now let's get over to today's episode. Here is Helen and our special guest, Fiona Fox. Welcome to Science Book Shambles. I'm Helen Chersky. I'm popping on to Book Shambles this week while Robin is away touring in the US. And I think if you'd like to know what Robin is up to, there will soon be another podcast with Robin's Tales. So look out for that in the on the uh, Cosmic Shambles website and Twitters and all those things. Now, here at Cosmic Shambles, we do believe it's important to talk about science and we do a lot of it on our live shows and on this podcast, but it's also important to talk about how we talk about science and where. And my guest this week is someone who has spent the past 20 years working on one of the most critical routes that science takes on its way from the lab bench into public conversation, and that is the media. Uh, And we will be talking about all of this, but 20 years ago, it was easy to define what the media was. It was TV news and newspapers and radio. um, and, And it was kind of slightly more manageable, perhaps, than it is today. And today it's, you know, the social media and rolling news and all that kind of thing. But there's this basic link that you still need between the scientist and the public via a journalist. So I'm delighted to welcome Fiona Fox, who is the founding director of the UK's Science Media Centre, to talk about her new book, Beyond the Hype, the inside story of science's biggest media controversies. So Fiona, welcome to Cosmic Shambles. Oh, thank you. Very, very pleased to be here. Now, I have to say, I read this book with uh, great interest, not just because it's a great book, but also because I know lots of the people in it. You know, I've spent we've we've been in some of the same sort of parties and groups and events and all that kind of stuff. And and it is it's it's really fascinating to see your point of view from behind the scenes. 
but before we get to any of that, I did just want to ask you, you know, you've spent years putting scientists up for interviews, you, you know, shepherding them, phoning them up, saying, right, can you do this interview? And now it's your turn uh, to, to face all of the questions. And I was just curious about what that's like. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, it, it's harder than, than I make it sound to the scientists. Um, so, yeah, it, I was just saying to you a minute ago that I talk too much um, and I'm not very good at kind of pulling out the key points in, in, in short order. And of course, um, that's what I've been asking scientists to do for 20 years. Just have your two or three points on a piece of card in front of you and make sure you don't ramble. And so, so yes, it has been very interesting being on the other the other side of that and having to um, communicate my ideas in 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 a soundbite etc although the beauty of a podcast is that I have a bit more time yeah <laughs> well I have to say I am um slightly notorious for doing media interviews for shows and books and things and forgetting to talk about the thing I'm there because there's so many other interesting ideas I just answer the questions and go oh I've got interesting things to say um and forget that I'm supposed to be promoting something <laughs> so it's very easily done um now I think we have to, we have, we need to do a bit of groundwork in this case, I think, because although uh, those of us who sort of move around the science media world are very aware of what the science media center is, it's kind of a hidden thing for a lot of people. So just just lay out for us what it actually is. Yeah, it is hidden. That, that's such a good point. And actually, I've been a, a PR stroke press officer for my whole career, um, which is about 40, 35, 40 years now. And one of the big jobs previous to the SMC was always to promote the brand name and do PR for the organisation that I worked for. So it was actually very refreshing when we set up the Science Media Centre to discover that we were not going to be promoting our name and that we were just going to be this slightly behind the scenes organisation that connected the journalists with the right scientist. And if that scientist is from the University of Edinburgh or the Crick Research Institute, then they get the profile. But, but as you say, that as a result of which the public, I think, don't really know we exist. And that's fine. They don't need to. Um, but yes. So where do we come from? We came from the big media frenzies, which your older listeners will, will be familiar with, but maybe the younger ones less so around MMR causes autism in the late 1990s, early noughties. GM crops, which was introduced to the British public as Frankenstein foods kill or um, designer babies with the um, emergence of stem cell research and therapeutic cloning um, and, and also kind of um, issues around animal research where the animal rights extremists were dominating headlines. So there were a number of very high profile media controversies around science and the scientific community were not very effective at engaging in those. And, you know, I don't want to exaggerate that we've made all the difference, but certainly around that time, we are a product of the scientific community itself, recognising that scientists needed to emerge more from their ivory towers. What, what was happening was that scientists were kind of, you know, maybe speaking to one journalist who agreed to check their copy and who had a science background, on the day that their new nature study came out, what they were less good at and what was um, becoming clear was really important was that they were coming out of those um, universities, engaging with a big row about their area of science and sticking there. So the GM debate and the MMR debate, these went on for years and, uh, you know, different peaks and troughs, but they were often in the headlines for, for weeks and weeks at a time. So this kind of, I'll come out and do one interview with my favourite science journalist didn't cut it anymore. So that's really why we were set up. We've always had that focus on 
the kinds of science stories that are messy and contested and stay in the headlines for a long time and the news media as you said that's changed quite a lot but this focus on news so we're not about getting science into the kind of features pages or into dramas we're about this this focus thing called the national news media so you're you're kind of a matching agency really that there's a there's a story and there's some science behind it and you're sort of the the forum in the middle that lets the journalists find the scientists is, is that a fair representation that, that's a very fair representation and we've now obviously that took years but we've now got 3000 very 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 good scientists on that database and so with with keywords next to every single one of their entries and we've persuaded them that they should take part in these debates. And yes, so when a journalist comes to us and say, I need to speak to a scientist about blah, um, we will be able to find them. Probably we'll be able to come up with 20 or 30 options and at least one or two of those scientists will be able to meet the need of that journalist. Now, I think I, I suspect that to some of our younger listeners, perhaps this will sound a bit mystifying because the, the default approach now, perhaps for someone coming into this is, oh, but there's Twitter and Google and Wikipedia, and how can it possibly be hard to find a scientist on any given topic? And, and so I think the, probably the way, uh, you know, we unfortunately, I mean, people should read your book. We don't have time to go through all the stories, but I think there's some very interesting um, examples of, of things going wrong. And I certainly remember, um, you know, these, these debates going on and it was so, it, it was so odd to watch, especially early on because, it, it was very easy to feel powerless, I think, because we didn't have Twitter. We didn't have any direct routes to anything, you know, if you weren't involved in the story. So so you, one of the early chapters in your book is about animal research. And actually, this is this is quite interesting, because I think the assumption is that early on, and this was undoubtedly true some of the time, the journalists didn't really want to speak to a proper scientist because they might spoil all the fun, you know, that they might either be boring or spike their story and actually the issue of animal research which has always been a contentious issue is that the universities didn't want to let the scientists speak which is not the way around that we assume so just maybe take us through a little bit of that and why why, why that happened yeah so that that I mean it was as I said it was a very different time in terms of the climate and the animal rights extremists from the kind of mid 90s onwards were really very active. And they had chosen to target and intimidate research scientists by you know, sending threats and having protests outside universities. People may remember that Cambridge University had to, I mean, they, they needed to update their animal research facilities and make them fit for the 21st century and modernize them and improve animal welfare. So they set about um, rebuilding a new um, facility for their animals, only to be met with these huge protests outside. And those protests became so um, intimidating and so high profile that the university actually had to pull out. And, and that was definitely the background into which I arrived was Every, all the universities around the country having seen what Cambridge had experienced. And I remember one <clears throat> meeting I had with a very senior pro VC for research in, in another um, top research university, who no matter what argument I put to him about why I thought the university and its researchers should speak out on this issue, kept saying, I cannot be the one who is responsible for inviting that level of protest to uh, this university. And so he, he just would not give me what I was looking for in terms of assurances. And then I think, you know, that, and to be honest, this bit hasn't completely gone away, that 
these universities are very, very keen on um, putting forward their scientists because that helps the reputation of the university um, and because those scientists have great, amazing science stories to talk to the public about. But when it becomes messy and controversial and toxic and polarised, then, of course, that's not um, that's reputational damage rather than reputational gain. So you do find that the same press officers who are very enthusiastic to work with the Science Media Centre and, and put their scientists up to speak to journalists are much more reluctant on certain subjects. Those subjects have changed, actually, um, but that's still there. And I wouldn't guarantee that in the future other issues will emerge where universities kind of discourage their academics to speak out. Um, so, yeah, we, we found a situation 20 years ago where almost no university, as a matter of course, was talk, encouraging their scientists to speak on their animal research. There was nothing on websites. And most shockingly for me, actually, they were removing references to the use of animals um, from press releases. So an author would have a paper coming out, would put in the fact that they used a mouse model or a guinea pig model or a primate even, um, and the press officers, the institutional press officers, would remove those. And this seemed really wrong to me. That there's one thing not being very proactive about uh, something that is going to get you targeted by activists. I could understand it. But to actually almost hide. And, and of course, in my world, one of the things we exist for is to make sure that the public are getting the most accurate and measured science out there. And if you have a study that's showing that something some uh, approach will cure blindness or treat Parkinson's, and yet that's only in an animal model, uh, then you need to say that. And, and you need to remind the journalists and the public that we're very far away from this working in humans. If you take out the reference to animals, um, you're misleading the public. So there were lots of reasons why I found this disturbing. It feels that we've kind of come full. So, I mean, I, I don't know, I'd be interested in your perspective on this. It feels, I mean, certainly the situations you describe in the early years of the Science Media Centre were very much that there was a reluctant, you know, it was difficult to make this connection and scientists were afraid of being attacked for various reasons. And then I remember, you know, when I came along and did a media fellowship in, in 2005 and, you know, this sort of, there was a lot of talk about, um getting scientists talking to the public and it felt like it went through a kind of good 10 years and then now you know if you speak to a lot of the scientists who've spoken out on covid for example um the availability of social media means they if they feel attacked again and i'm not sure whether that's just my selective kind of memory or whether it actually is that because things are a bit angrier now and because twitter you know twitter's available the attacks are perhaps going up again. Is that is that the way you see it, or am I is this am I sort of mistaken here? You're not mistaken, um, but I, like you, find it quite difficult to put my finger on the exact reason. But I agree with you that I suppose things were maybe things were so bad in 2002, in bad as in you know such a small number percentage of scientists seeing that engaging with the public and journalists was part of what it was to be a scientist. So that was, but, but on, on, on the plus side, you identified the problem and you knew what to do to solve it. You had to um, uh, um, persuade those scientists that part of being a really great scientist was to do your science, but also to engage the public with you. And I think, you know, scroll forward to the COVID vaccine, there was no good Sarah Gilbert creating this wonderful AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine if the public were anti-vax or really worried about taking this vaccine and wouldn't take it. So, so at some level, uh, scientists like Sarah Gilbert, um, even though, trust me, she in particular is not somebody who welcomes the media limelight, 
understood that she had to do both. So, so I think you could identify the problem back in 2002. We had good arguments because the failure to engage on GM um, and MMR had a, had a cost, which was very visible. The public turned against GM. The MMR vaccine programme came dangerously close to below the required level to give herd immunity. Um, and it does feel like those years were great. They were the kind of glory days where it just was, it kind of exponentially got better and better and better. And then I also, like you, feel like it plateaued. But but um, I would give you three reasons for this. And, and I'm, I hope I'm modest in the book at trying to characterise these reasons, but myself not being sure um, to what extent each one is, is relevant. So one is the one you mentioned, most definitely, social media and a shouty, polarised debate where too many people shout at each other rather than thrashing out these issues in a civilised way. That definitely has put scientists off taking part. And, and what worries me in a way is a certain kind of scientist who's a bruiser and, you know, loves all this will enter. But some of the really, really good scientists who I think you and I and the public should hear from and want to hear from uh, just say life's too short. I, I don't want to deal with that. Um, so there is that. And the Science Media Centre has actually been working quite a lot on, on um, building the resilience and supporting scientists who, who, who are targeted. But there's also a couple of other factors. One is, weirdly, the over-professionalisation of, of science communication. Um, and I've seen that happening, you know, back, back in the day, there might only be one science press officer and, you know, she might be a, a scientist who decide I've had enough at the bench, I'm going to do some PR. Um, and they were my, I loved those press officers because they really cared about science. And um, and then what you had was you, you might have a press office that had one 10 years ago that now has 15, 20 you know, senior comms officers, internal comms, reputational comms, very slick, very professional, uh, and, and sometimes not with that kind of science background. So they haven't kind of built up from those early career science communicators. They're, they're often, a lot of these, especially in universities now, are coming from government, they're coming from the um, from industry, and they're very professional. And they often... Um, I think, feel like, well, it's not the strategic priority for this uh, university or this organisation to get involved in this debate, so I will discourage my scientists. And we are quite often told, um, actually, we're not going to be we're not going to be putting forward anyone because this isn't a, a strategic priority. And then the third thing is something I talk about quite a lot in the book, which is how um, more and more what I think you and I would see as publicly funded public interest science is somehow or other pulled into the government communication system because either it's funded by the government, we saw this in the pandemic where the, the government kind of became the national commissioner for science and they set up all these brilliant studies and it was a brilliant thing for them to do, one of the best bits of the government response and, you know, these fantastic independent scientists in Imperial and Oxford were kind of working for the government, uh, create generating data, look, uh, setting up clinical studies. But because it was government commissioned, they, they ended up in the government communication system. And again, uh, so this is like the third reason now that I have scientists saying, no, I can't do that, Fiona, because the government department that looks after this doesn't want us to do a press conference or would prefer that JVT or uh, Chris Whitty spoke about this rather than the individual scientists. So I think if you add them all up, you just do get to the fact that we are being told no more often than we think we should be. These scientists 
should be available to journalists and the public. And somehow there are more barriers to that. So I thought, I mean, I, I have watched this thing because I, I think, I mean, I think you, 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 um, you make a statement to this effect somewhere in the book, but I've always thought that if it's not transparent, it's not science. Like the entire point of science is that you collect some evidence. People should be able to look at your methods. They should be able to look at your data. They should be look at, able to look at the quality of your analysis and they should be able to look at your conclusions and they should work out whether they agree with what you did at each of those four stages, you know, and it's not that everyone has to do that, but it should be, there's a basic transparency. And I do find it, I've been very mystified by this, this, this feeling that it could be closed down. Like it, it's actually, I, I, you know, I find it very difficult to imagine that it's allowed <laughs> for it to be closed down in a way. And how does this work? And it, and as a, as a working scientist, it definitely limits what I do because I'm not going to put myself in those situations where I might be shut down. And even tiny hints of that are very uncomfortable. And I think that, I mean, this is a problem of our time, I think, in the sort of brand management thing. But let's come to one of the other examples in the book, um, which is uh, David Nutt, going back to those who remember David Nutt. And I think, and the thing here, which I think is very interesting and very relevant to this question of open openness in science is this, this idea that you can as a scientist looking at government, you can either criticize them publicly or you can be listened to, but you can't have both. Which feel, you know, is that, is it, is it really as bad as that, I guess, is what I'm asking. Oh gosh, well, you know, we were, I can't remember whether I put that in the book now, but we were told that at one stage by somebody who we really, really like and respect. Um, and at the time, I had been a bit more vocal and, and was criticising some of this lack of openness that you've described really well, I think. I, I like that quote that um, if it's not open, it's not science. That's such a fundamental part of science is that it should be out there. Um, so we've been quite uh, vocal about this. And this person who I can honestly say was a friend of the SMC, um, came over to see us and was chatting away and said, the problem is that you have to choose. You have to, are you going to be a trusted friend of government? And the key thing, apparently, that makes you a trusted friend is if you speak behind closed doors to, to government, to officials, to, um, to, to ministers, etc. cetera. Uh, whereas if you choose to speak, write articles and speak on panels, and make these points, then you're outside the trusted friend. Now, you know, your question is, is it really that bad? That, that's an interesting one, because I actually, I'm not sure that I believed what he was saying. I think if they had the choice, they would, that would be the message that goes out. To, you know, if they can reduce the number of people who publicly criticise the way things are done, they will. Um, and you probably do get more traction if, if you're inside kind of plugging away. But I'm just not, I always remember many years ago in a different job, the, the Claire Short, the then minister um, for, for overseas aid, actually coming to all of the aid agencies, and I used to work for one, um, saying, can you do me a favour? Can you please shout and yell about how awful the government's aid policy is? Because if you shout from outside, that gives me um, a stronger case to make insight. And she wasn't asking us to make it up. It was the truth. You know, the government at that time were not doing enough on overseas aid. So I'm not sure if I buy it. I think that if they can control it, they will. But, but then you look at sometimes the pressure growing outside and scientists speaking out in large numbers um, are exactly what is needed to nudge the dial and improve things. 
Um, but but sadly, that is still the message that's coming from government. And, and they certainly, and it really, really annoyed me. I think I say that in the book that, that not, not only the government, but other scientists saying, you know, really good scientists who respected David Nutt saying David Nutt's problem was the fact that he articulated his differences with government in the media. And of course, they couldn't put up with that. And you think, really? Well, we, should um, perhaps no, just, we should perhaps just remind the audience what David Nutt did, because it was actually what he did is actually very memorable and very clever, I thought. But it got him in a lot of trouble. <laughs> Yeah, so um, one of the things I'm at pains to do in the book is say that um, the row that got him sacked was over a published paper. It wasn't him, you know, taking uh, uh, opinion columns in the National Dailies to vent his disagreement with government. It was a study, and his 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 real specialism at the time and, and still is relative harms of different drugs, including alcohol and. Um, so he had got a PhD student or a bunch of his PhD students to look into this interesting hypothesis that more people were harmed from falling off horses than had died from taking ecstasy. And he's actually a clinician, David, now, and he had seen and he's, he's about um, psychopharmacology and, and the brain. And he was talking to um, quite a few people whose, you know, whose entire lives had been decimated after they'd fallen off a horse. I know it sounds a bit bizarre, but- um, We had a name so, for it, didn't it? We called it equinacy um, or something. Oh, was it? Yeah, I can't remember that. Um, and you know, he did a good study. He's a good scientist, he did a good study. He oversaw it, but it was a bunch of PhD. And it did actually show that there, there had been more harm um, caused by this and he published. And then, you know, the government were really angry and this was presented as some kind of random getting up in the morning, David, not thinking, oh, here's a clever thing. But it was actually published research. So the point um, was that he was he, they had a drugs policy or they wanted to have a drugs policy. And a, their drugs policy was based on the idea that all drugs are really bad. And what he was saying was, well, here's an activity that, you know, some rich people do, frankly. And actually, that might be that might be worse. And he was just it wasn't even a controversial. I didn't really understand what I mean, I, I got why I annoyed people. But it, he wasn't actually saying he was saying there's lots of risk in life. Here are some risky things. Um, and and the others make that connection. Go on. No, exactly. And the other studies that he and Colin Blakemore and, and other very eminent people had listed all of the drugs, legal and illegal. Like I say, alcohol causes a lot more damage, according to every uh, study I've seen of this nature than cannabis and yet they're all put and that there you've got as you say the government wanted to say that cannabis was as dangerous um, as heroin and, and these other and cannabis and ecstasy were as dangerous as heroin and crack cocaine and, and they have literally done amazing research kind of looking at the harms of each of these drugs but it was I mean the key thing here was it was inconvenient the, the government had a a message and this is one of the reasons I want to keep science out of the government communication system because the government is voted by the public they are entitled to have a message about their drugs policy they have to please the police they have to please drug workers they have to please the public they have to please daily mail readers if they're going to to win the next election I've got no problem with that what I've got a problem is is that, that this is independent scientists who have just been appointed for a couple of years to chair an independent advisory body called the ACMD, the Advisory Committee on the Misuse of Drugs, and he was sacked based on what his science was showing. Um, and yeah, I, I think it was, and I, I use it very much to, to, to take me into some of my points about my feeling that we need to have these independent scientists giving their advice, 
government making the decision and clear blue water between the two. If the government reject that advice, that's absolutely fine. But tell the public we've rejected it because of these reasons, rather than sack your drugs advisor because you don't like what he's saying or pretend. I mean, if you look at badges and TB, you know, numerous studies showing that the badger call wasn't straightforwardly going to uh, cause the problem. And rather than just saying, well, the science uh, suggests that this isn't the solution, but we need a solution. We haven't got a vaccine to deal with this, so, so we have to do something. They started saying the scientists are telling us that we need a badger cull. Well, that wasn't really the truth. So, yeah, it's about being open. So, I mean, I, I think this is interesting, actually, because what you're the point that you're making, uh, and it's one that I feel quite strongly, is that that, as you say, there is a difference between being open about the evidence and a policy decision which has to take into account economics and culture and all these other things. And and actually what you're describing is the sort of nuanced situation you get in a science story. <laughs> and it's your job to help communicate the nuanced situations you get in science stories. And yet you appear to be a bit, you know, the you know you you sort of present the idea that this is not this is this is a hard point to communicate perhaps that they these are separate things the openness of evidence is separate to policy is is there any you know you've you've spent years helping people guiding people to the right experts to understand nuanced ideas is there any hope of that particular nuanced idea getting any traction well well do you know what i know the pandemic has been the most terrific time for the world and for all of us. And, I, and I, I, I am, you know, sometimes reluctant to say that anything good came out of it. But one of the things that I find is that the public demonstrated how sophisticated they could be. Um, a classic example um, of, of what we're just talking about here was when JCVI, the body that comes up with scientific advice about vaccine, had um, uh, several times kind of quite subtle messages about whether or not children should be vaccinated. Um, and as you know, the most controversial one was, was the um, kind of mixed advice where they said, there is just not enough evidence of the benefits to children and teenagers as well um, to, to make this advice clear cut, all children should be vaccinated. And there were also at the time, some accounts of some harms in terms of um, um, uh, heart, heart defects for people who are vaccinated, teenagers who are vaccinated. So they came out with a nuanced message, but they then passed the final decision to the chief medical officer and the other medical officers from the different regions. Um, and I thought, I, I then heard a number of phone-ins and you know, Radio 5 Live had a long phone-in about it. I was so impressed by the sophisticated way in which the public had understood this. They could see that JCVI had, with all that nuance and all that complexity and all that messiness, decided not to come out and make a clear um, uh, uh, statement in favour of childhood vaccination, but had said that if you're looking just in terms of individual health impacts, we cannot recommend definitely to use it. The CMO, the chief medical officer in our country and the other countries, do have to take in this, as you were saying earlier, these wider issues, impact on education, impact on you know, getting us over this pandemic. Um, and so they ruled in favour of doing it with these broader points in mind. And we lived with that. You know, I remember talking to a journalist saying, what if JCBI didn't recommend vaccination for children, but the government did? And the journalist said just a few days before it happened, because I'd had a tip off this would happen, 
oh, I don't think they could do that. You know, everybody thinks that the government keeps saying it's following the science. I don't think any of us would get away with this. It would be a huge row. It would be a major furore. Guess what? It wasn't. It wasn't a major furore. It was it was absorbed. So so I guess my message is that um, do the right thing. Tell the truth. Be honest. I mean, I bet there was pressure on JCVI at a certain stage to not come out with that advice. They stuck to their guns. They are an independent body. Um, they communicated that very carefully to science journalists and the sky didn't fall in. And so what is, I, I, we're sort of coming a little bit towards the end of the time we've got, but I do want to ask you about what comes next for the Science Media Centre, because we've sort of mentioned this idea now that social media has changed things. I mean, the world's very different to the world that there was 20 years ago. I don't think that the need for science to be not just in decision making, but communicated accurately along with news stories or whatever becomes a news story. I mean, it's not entirely clear who's necessarily making the news very much anymore, all that kind of stuff. So what what are the big challenges you see coming up about getting actual accurate science directly from the scientists who are doing it, preferably into the places that inform the public about science in in a news type environment? So I think, you know, some of them we've discussed, we we need to keep battling um, these restraints. So 20 years ago, everybody, everybody understood that scientists had to engage in these controversies and speak to people. I feel now like there are restraints on the scientists that are allowed to do that. And I think, I mean, it was it was very interesting you saying that that worries you and that sometimes you even make decisions based on the fact that you don't want those restraints being put on you you want to keep your independence Um, I think maybe not enough scientists feel like that and you see scientists signing up to do pieces of research for government and neglecting to see the clause in the commissioning contract that says they are not allowed to speak openly about that research because it's government owned Um, So I think that's not good enough. I think scientists are going to have to look at that clause in the contract and say, we are doing this research at this university. We we are generating the data and therefore we can communicate it. So some of this is is a really, you know, um, probably unrealistic hope that the government would step back from trying to control things. Government communications, people like to control things. Maybe more importantly, and, and I hope in a way my book starts this debate a bit more, is for scientists to assert themselves and say, no, this is publicly funded data generated in a university or research institute. We will talk to the public about it with no restraint. So, so that's one thing. On the social media, just before I spoke to you, um, we are 20 this year. We're going to do a number of things for our 20th. And one of the things we thought we would do is look at um, repeating a poll that we did or a survey that we did with Mori um, when we opened in 2002. Um, a poll which was completely scuppered because we, we, we uh, put it out under embargo on the Friday um, to be in the media on the Monday and the Queen Mother died over the weekend. So we got absolutely no traction for it. But... It showed us, and it's just fascinating to look at it, that the vast majority of people got their information about science from the news media. And there was a long list of about 20 things, including science festivals, libraries, friends and family. And there's no social media. I couldn't believe it when I read it. There was no such thing as social media in 2002. I mean, that's how rapidly things have changed. 
So one of the interesting things, if we repeat that now, is to see how many people have the sense that they're actually getting more information on, about science. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that our role has to change that much because a lot of social media feeds off you know, the Daily Mail or Radio 5 Live or Sky News or whatever, a lot of the, the news takes place in mainstream news media, albeit that's changed a lot as well, and then feeds through to social media. I've got a 21-year-old son who often says, oh, this has come up on my Twitter, but when I grab his phone and look at it, there is a link that a mate has sent, but it's to BBC News Online. So so I think we think that we, we're a very small team. There's only five press officers in the team. And we want to be expert at news media. Um, but I think we need to be really, really mindful of, you know, that there may be a day where young people literally are not getting any of their information from the mainstream news media. It's all via other channels. Um, and we can't just be sitting there saying we're all about mainstream news media because we want to we want to get great science to the public. And, and given what um, we've talked about a lot in this, if if there are kind of universities and others almost retreating from that space, the, the space of getting information to the public unadulterated, if they are moving a bit away from that, then I think the Science Media Centre staying there, sticking in this, and uh, um, I'll finish now, but, but the pandemic is a good example of that. We, we were talking to universities who honestly a few years ago would have been all over um, helping the media deal with with this, you know, we have infectious diseases experts, immunologists in their university, but they just admitted that they were doing internal comms, student comms, corporate comms, reputational comms. They just didn't have the number of staff that were both focused on on science communication and also focused on meeting the needs of the news media. So someone needs to to fill that gap. So. Um... Just, for, I mean, I I could happily talk to you about this for hours and hours and hours because I I I think a lot about this, but also the one of the things we should say about your book is that it's your personal, you know, you you've not set out the, the definitive historical version. This this is Fiona Fox's perspective on what happened to her during all of this, but it is very interesting. But one of the things I just to, as we finish is. Um, so obviously this is interesting to me because I'm a practicing scientist and I talk about science in the news and in the media. It's interesting to you because it's your job. It's interesting perhaps to uh, university comms people and, you know, brand managers of various types. Why is it interesting? Why should it be interesting to everybody else? Oh, great question. Um, I, I feel so passionately about that bit because science, these discussions, these decisions um affect every bit of our lives so whether or not we should um accept that the climate is changing irrevocably the fact that you know should should the answer to that partly be nuclear power um or, or should it be you know a hundred other a thousand other approaches to meeting the needs of a warmer climate which ones we choose um, it is absolutely essential. And that's just climate change. You know, on every every other big science story, drugs, the way we do clinical trials, um, there's so many questions. Um, we need the public to have an informed discussion about the way forward. And like, like I said earlier, that not that they uh, should embrace one technology or reject one technology, but that they should come to a decision about what they think about that and what they will vote for in future elections, et cetera, based on having heard 
from the best scientists who are actually working on that. And one of the things we, we haven't talked about is how in 2002, because the, the kind of mild-mannered researchers who were used to being in the laboratory didn't take part in these discussions, you had kind of celebrity scientists like Robert Winston, you know, all credit to him, and Susan Greenfield, a neuroscientist, who were commenting on GM crops one day and nuclear power the next day and um, synthetic biology the next day. Actually, we want to we want the scientists who are researching those areas of science to be part of this debate. And then if the public reject that science, that's absolutely fine, but they must have access to it. And that's why, um, yeah, and that's why this should matter because if the public are not hearing from a particular group of really good scientists because of some kind of constraints put on them by their institute, by the government, um, then they're not getting the best information and they might make the wrong decisions. Brilliant. That's a great way to end. And I, I, I do genuinely recommend this book to everyone, partly because all of us read the news stories and this tells you what happened to get those stories to you. So, so I think that everyone will find interesting things in this because these are stories that were in the background actually for lots of us for a long time. Um, and actually finding how they were constructed, I think is really interesting. So um, I'm just going to add a little bit of cosmic shambles admin at the end here, which is that uh, if, if, listeners would like to support the network you can subscribe at patreon.com slash cosmic shambles and there's all kinds of bonus content there and things like the full the full unedited versions of podcasts rather than the slightly edited ones and loads of other stuff so do support the cosmic shambles network if you can fiona it's been a pleasure to talk to you i hope that the publicity for the book uh, goes very very well i think it's a great book and thank you very much for joining us on cosmic shambles thank you so much for having me i enjoyed it Thank you very much for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Fiona's book is available now, so head to your local favourite independent bookshop to get yourself a copy of that. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to support the podcast, get extended episodes and all sorts of other goodies. Don't forget as well to rate and like and review five stars on Apple Podcasts. Check out the Shambles shop as well, cosmicshambles.com slash shop for signed copies of books from lots of our regular shambles contributors like Helen and Dean Burnett and Hannah Fry and Ginny Smith and John Butterworth and Robin, obviously, and lots of others as well. We've got new uh, signed copies of Beck Hill's new book uh, just in as well. So have a look at that. Back next week with another new episode. Until then, take care, stay safe and bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Oh, <laughs>